Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about all sorts of things to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories, including Subaru upgrades the XV, there's an all-new Haval H6, and Volkswagen gets very thirsty about the need for emission targets. With an upcoming adventure in a Mini Electric, we get the lowdown on BMW's electrification program from Brendan Mock for Mini Australia. And in feedback, we have some comments from technical experts on the accuracy of a recent cartoon in the newspaper about pressing pedestrian call buttons in times of COVID. Several industry figures reflect on the benefits of plug-in hybrids. And finally, we talk to Paul Morell, not about choosing a car, but how hard it is to buy one that will be delivered soon. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. The Subaru XV is a stylish vehicle in the increasingly competitive small SUV category. An upgraded XV was released in November last year. All models now have a two-mode driving configuration, Sport and Eco. There is a revised suspension for improved handling and comfort, new wheel designs, and at the front a new grille, bumper, and fog-like design. A strong focus in the upmarket variants is on driver assistance, with features such as blind spot monitor, lane change assist, rear cross traffic alert and front and side view monitor. An uncommon feature is reverse automatic braking, which reduces the chance of you backing into objects. There are now two mild hybrid models which add $3,400 to the price. Every Subaru is all-wheel drive and prices start from $29,700 up to $40,800 plus on roads. The biggest selling car in the small SUV category is the MG ZS. Great Wall Motors market utes in Australia under the Great Wall name and SUVs as Havals. They are showing strong percentage growth in our market, but they are still a small player with only five different models in their fleet. The latest Haval H6 medium SUV has just been launched. All variants have a 2-litre turbocharged petrol engine and a 7-speed dual-clutch transmission. The base model, called somewhat paradoxically the Premium, is two-wheel drive and priced at $31,000 drive away and includes autonomous emergency braking with pedestrian and bicycle detection, lane keep assist, blind spot monitoring and driver fatigue monitoring. Top of the range is a four-wheel drive model at nearly $39,000 drive away and adds heads-up display, wireless phone charging, heated and ventilated front seats, rear cross-traffic alert and fully automatic parking. The Toyota RAV4 is way ahead in first place in sales and has a hybrid option but costs more. A few weeks ago, Hyundai released a teaser photo of their new Staria people mover. Now they have held an international launch with all the specification details. Unlike their cousin, Kia, whose new carnival looks like a slightly stretched SUV, the Staria maintains a van-like look, albeit with a more space-age grille and rounded corners, 
to reduce its boxy appearance. Staria variations range from two seats up to eight seats capacity. There will also be an 11-seat variant, but that's only in Korea. Hyundai says that the sense of spaciousness in the vehicle is inspired by traditional Korean Hanok architecture. Hanok means Korean house, but on a broader level, it includes all types of traditional Korean architecture, such as Buddhist temples, and dates back to the 14th century. The vehicle, however, will not have the typical tile roof with a steep-pitched shape. Volkswagen Australia has come out firing about our slowness to embrace environmentally sensitive vehicles, saying we reside in the automotive third world. Volkswagen's managing director, Michael Barch, said, Such is the reluctance of government to countenance carbon emissions reduction targets. Auto importers are obliged to implement self-regulation. Australia is becoming a dumping ground for older and less efficient vehicles, he said. Many Volkswagen vehicles run on higher octane petrol that can cost up to 25 cents a litre more. Volkswagen says that if you do have a car that runs on the lower octane, 91 RON, you are using fuel with a very high sulphur content and resultant pollution. Mr Barch said, even some of the popular hybrids on sale in this country utilise old tech engines that run on Australia's standard 91 petrol, with 150 parts per million of sulphur, 15 times worse than global best practice. A short while ago, Hyundai registered 20 hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, and now Toyota has brought in 20 of their own hydrogen-powered vehicles, the Mirai, for an extended demonstration trial. They will lease them to what they call pioneering organisations and businesses. Toyota has already run a small trial program with 10 vehicles starting in 2018 in collaboration with local Melbourne councils and utility companies, with the cars refuelled from a mobile hydrogen refueller. The Mirai is a five-seat rear-drive four-door sedan. The arrangement is a 36-month, 60,000-kilometre lease costing $1,750 per month for three years, which includes fuel. This equates to $21,000 a year. The hydrogen is stored in the vehicle in three carbon fibre reinforced plastic tanks, giving the Mirai a range of approximately 650 kilometres. It also has a small lithium-ion battery to help in power delivery. And that has been the news. We're about to make a trip up to see our good friend Bob Holden, winner of the 1966 Bathurst 500 in a Mini Cooper S. I thought that a good car to take up there would be a new Mini to get him to drive the latest in the current world of motoring. BMW suggested that it would be really good to take up an electric Mini to reflect the world we're moving to. The person who suggested the electric Mini was Brendan Mock, the Media Communications Manager for Mini Australia. Let's have a chat about the car and BMW's approach to electrification. G'day, Brendan. Hi. It's nice to meet you, David. BMW has a few all-electric eco-friendly vehicles, the stunning-looking low-slung supercar, the i8, and the smaller, more everyday i3. They came at a time when there was not a great deal of momentum for electric cars. Has that situation changed? Of course, I think that situation has changed greatly uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, you see that there's a huge sort of mindset shift towards um, electrified and electric vehicles uh, in the market. 
And um very happy to say that we are really at the forefront of that um, shift. So the electric mini, it's not just a hero car. It's an indication of the dominant aspect of the future? Absolutely, absolutely, David. Now, um, we are really on track with um, um, revolutionizing the business at BMW, and um, we are looking to introduce 25 electrified models by the year 2023, and more than half of these will be fully electric. So the Mini Electric already one of them, with many, many more in the pipeline. So is the electric Mini based on the same platform as the normal Mini? Yes, that's right. So it is based on the same platform as uh, the regular Mini, and it has the internals of uh, the BMW i3. You know, that's a well-proven platform. It's been in the market for close to eight years now, since 2013. And over the years, you know, it's really been a proven um, electric vehicle uh, powertrain and battery package. How many doors does it have? So this is a two-door mini or a three-door mini hatch, if you count the boot. So this would be the most iconic mini shape. One door on each side is, of course, like the original mini, but I presume it doesn't have sliding windows. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do sliding windows at the rear, unfortunately. Yeah, it doesn't have the old sliding windows. Yeah, so the cool thing about this Mini Electric is that, you know, the battery is basically put underneath the car uh, in a T-shape as well. So the car really maintains that, you know, that, that traditional go-kart handling qualities because all of that weight is down low and, you know, the center of rarity is, is much lower as well. The car's got a bespoke suspension that's set up specifically for the Mini Electric. Uh, and, you know, everything's tuned um, to deliver maximum handling fun and handling thrills and i'm so excited for you to try it and for you and bob to try it (laughs) so who do you think will buy the electric mini so the mini electric really appeals to i would say urbanites so these are the people that are living commuting and um, running errands within the city they um, probably have fairly short work commutes and this is really their city car so the range of the Mini Electric is, uh, we would say, relatively conservative at 233 kilometers for every full charge, but it does benefit from the ability of fast charging. So if you have access to a DC charger, a public DC charger, you can fully charge or rather charge it up to 80% in just 35 minutes. The idea of running zero pollution, well, at least in the local area, is going to be enhanced when governments around the world start doing what London has done, which is put a very high charge on vehicles entering the inner city if they are not ultra-low emission vehicles. Is this a way to go? And do you think this might be the measure that really helps push our uptake of electric vehicles? Definitely. I think one of the ways that government can encourage the take-up of uh, electric vehicles is to create more of these low-emission vehicle zones and emission-free vehicle zones. Uh, But we must recognize that every country has uh, different uh, requirements. And so uh, what we'll say is, you know, Mini is ready for it when the time comes. We have an EV solution that's already in our pocket. And, you know, it's going to be a matter of basically... Um, rolling out the, the, the 
the the car more when legislations and when the rules are beneficial for it. We basically listen to our customers' um, requirements and their requests, and we will, you know, even make additional um, purchases for, for example, for allocations for production slots. Uh, as and when, you know, we get the customer demand. The customer demand then will depend very much on what sort of facilities are readily available. Yes, I think in the end, we listen to the customer's demands and that is in the end what this, what translates to our product portfolio in the future. Of course, we remain hopeful, you know, that in the future, the product portfolio will become more and more electric as, um, as I'm not sure if you've heard, but Mini has already committed to becoming an emissions-free brand by the year 2030. So by that time, we will not have a fossil fuel powertrain in our lineup. Just phase out combustion engines in our lineup. Brendan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, David. I hope you enjoy the car. And that was Brendan Mock, who is the Media Communications Manager for Mini Australia and the one who suggested that we take an electric Mini up to see our great friend Bob Holden, winner of the 1966 Bathurst 500 in an old Mini Cooper S. This is Overdrive across Australia. A colleague who is a traffic engineer sent in a Lunig cartoon that recently appeared in the paper. It has a fit runner approaching a pedestrian signal and raising his leg to push the button with his foot to avoid touching it for fear of catching COVID. Unfortunately, he had just stepped in a deposit left behind by a dog. The next person comes along and they're defined as being old-fashioned and perhaps not quite as flexible, and they have to press the button with their hand. Now, this cartoon brought back memories of an old signal technician, Arthur, telling my friend that in his early days, when working in Sydney's eastern suburbs, ladies would ask him to push the pedestrian button for them, so they didn't have to touch a dirty button themselves. Another traffic engineer said that he thought the ladies would have been wearing gloves, but apparently these need to be protected as well. The final word, though, is that the early pedestrian call buttons were brass, a material used in door handles for centuries, as it was long known, I'm told, to have antibacterial properties. The punchline for the cartoon was, life goes on. You're listening to Overdrive. Since it was first launched 10 years ago, the Camry Hybrid has been an outstanding sales success. Currently, over 70% of all Camry sales are the hybrid version. Toyota updated the Camry in March this year with enhanced safety features, bolder grille design, larger and more functional touchscreen, revised dash and connectivity. Powered by a 2.5-litre hybrid powertrain that combines twin electric generators, delivers a maximum of 160 kilowatts. Driven just like a normal car, the Camry also delivers outstanding fuel economy. We managed 5 litres per 100 k's over the two weeks we drove it. SL model features include heated and cooled front seats, electric boot opening, heads-up display, panoramic roof and view monitor, and a nine-speaker JBL audio system. To me, an all-electric car makes very limited sense. The limitations outweigh the benefits. However, hybrids make a huge amount of sense. They require no change to driver habits, have outstanding fuel economy, and no range anxiety. 
Camry SL Hybrid is priced from $46,990 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. One type of vehicle that I think is underrated is the plug-in hybrid. With these vehicles, you can charge the batteries and run as a zero local emission vehicle for about 40k, enough for most city trips. But you have a petrol engine that can take over when the battery is flat. They can have a range of up to 800 kilometres. The only problem is that if you get lazy and don't charge it frequently, you and the community do not get the benefits of running as an electric vehicle. Here's another quote from Brendan Mock, the media manager for Mini Australia. Are you going to include some plug-in hybrids? Yes, and you know what? That's really in line with the company's uh, power of choice um, product strategy, which is that you know we give the customer the ultimate choice in what they think is the most power, is the most suitable powertrain for them. So if you live in, let's say, somewhere that's a little bit more rural and you want to find uh, a car that suits your needs for, you know, long distance travel, then, you know, a, a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid vehicle is, is more suitable for you. And if you live in a city where you have access to charging infrastructure anywhere, anytime, then, you know, our range of EVs are perfect for you. So no matter what size, no matter what um, body style you like. So we have a 330E, a 530E, an X330E. You know, we have the X545E. These are all the plug-in hybrids that we have. And right next to that, you'll also see our range of EVs. So we have the i3, like you said, the i8 also. And now what's coming up, the iX3, which is the um, mid-size SUV version of the um, all-electric uh X3, and we also have the i4, this very beautiful uh, Grand Coupe-shaped car that's also going to be fully electric. Uh, And uh, even later on the horizon, we also have the BMW iX, which is going to be built on our all-new electric vehicle platform, and that's a really, really exciting model that's in the pipeline coming to Australia at the end of the year. Last week, we heard from Roland Rivero from Kia on a range of subjects. And he adds his thoughts on plug-in hybrids. There is a a press release out that you put out saying that there's a mild hybrid for the European market. Will we see it here in the Stonic? There is a mild hybrid uh, offered in uh, in Europe. Uh, We we have no plans, to be honest, David, to bring it to Australia. What we are looking at for our green car strategy is is hybrid, plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles. At this stage, uh, stock levels uh, are rather tight with Stonic and adding any more complexity to that range uh, is just going to make it a little bit more difficult from a supply chain perspective anyway. I think plug-in hybrids have been overlooked. Do you agree? I 100% agree. I've been driving the the Nero plug-in hybrid over the last couple of weeks, believe it or not, and... um, I think if there was ever any apprehension of making the switch to EVs, this is a nice sweet spot where some of those things that, you know, like range anxiety, some of those issues that may be confronting you switching to EV, and I know that obviously there's a lot of Australians that also live in uh, in apartments, for example, where stratas may not allow the installation of, uh, of charges in, in your respective car parks. A plug-in hybrid might be a, a great solution for that because it, it takes away some of those issues whereby 
you know, you've, you've easily got about 50, 50 plus kilometers, uh, strictly on EV. For me, that's actually my drive back and forth from, from home to office and from office back to, back to home again. But at the same time, if I wanted to take a long drive and take the family for a long drive to wherever, to the Hunter Valley, for example, or, or down south, uh, I've got all the freedom to, to drive it both, uh, in EV mode and in hybrid mode. And I can easily get over 800 Ks of, of range. So it's, um, it's the best of both worlds, um, the, the plug-in hybrid. And I'm, I'm a big fan. You can get 800 kilometer range, but even then, if you don't have access to a charger, you can just fill it up with petrol and keep going. Exactly right. I'm a fan of the plug-in hybrid. It just, uh, I think takes away some of the issues that people might have. Uh, making the the switch from internal combustion all the way to to an EV, and it's obviously from pricing perspective also a little, a little bit cheaper. The batteries don't have to be as big as a full electric vehicle. It's bigger than a than a hybrid, and gives you that that extra power and extra performance. But at the same time, it it, it allows you to enjoy the best of both worlds. It gives you the the hybrid environment in which. You can drive it just like any other vehicle and not have to worry about charging. Uh, but at the same time, if, if you do want to, want to charge it, you'll, you'll get 50, 55 kilometers of EV range, which for many of us living in the urban environment or doing the drives to work, that's more than adequate. I think they're sadly overlooked. You just have to make sure people are charging them regularly rather than becoming lazy to it. You mentioned you've been driving one. Which one was that? The Nero, Nero plug-in hybrid. So we're, we're not long to, uh, till we launch, uh, the, uh, the Nero range. And Nero will be offered in, in hybrid, plug-in hybrid and EV also. When might we see that in Australia? We did show some of it, obviously, at the Australian Open. Uh, they were part of the VIK fleet, but, uh, our customers will be able to order the Nero range within this month. This is Overdrive across Australia. Subaru has launched the sixth generation Outback and we took the top spec touring version for a drive. The latest model has revised styling with LED fog lights, wider rear door, 18 inch alloys, as well as a full size spare. Inside, the major difference is an 11.6-inch touchscreen, which houses almost all functionality. It's intuitive and easy to use. Other highlights are a passenger external mirror that dips when you hit reverse, heated rear outer seats, one-touch windows, as well as a reverse camera washer. It's powered by a 2.5-litre boxer engine, delivers 138 kilowatts, 245 newton meters, and drives through a revised CVT with an eight-step manual mode. Every Outback features the brilliant Active Torque Split all-wheel drive system, combines with dual-mode X-mode and enhances Outback's all-wheel drive off-road performance. And the latest model takes an exceptionally good vehicle and makes it even better. For the price, it's an absolute bargain, and you'll get nothing that has the same level of safety and comfort features or all-wheel drive capability anywhere near that price in its competitors. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. One of the biggest issues in purchasing a car at the moment is not choosing the right one, but getting one delivered in a reasonable time. Let's get some perceptions from our mate, Paul Morell. Yes, that's becoming a serious issue at the moment. Um, my readers at Senior Driver Oz are constantly on 
on email to me complaining that, yes, after reading my reviews of some cars, they say, that sounds good, go out to buy one and find that they won't get one until August or September. Uh, that's an issue that's been created really by the COVID-19 hmm. pandemic. What happened was that the car companies, in anticipation of a slowdown in demand, cancelled a lot of their orders for external suppliers of things like you know computer chips and essential things that they didn't think they were going to need too many of. Um, the the take-up or the recovery has been a lot quicker than they expected, and their supplying suppliers haven't been able to ramp up their production oh. to meet the new demand. And we now have the situation where I was talking to Volkswagen last week. They have, they're have they holding lots and lots of orders. They just can't get stock to meet those deliveries. And I was talking to Hyundai, and they even suggested that there's a possibility that the factory in Korea may be having to shut down simply because they can't get these cars off the end of the production line. This is becoming quite a serious issue. I looked at the sales of Volkswagens, and the Golf so far for the first two months of the year have sold nothing, Mm. practically. It is not just a minor dip. It seems to be a major impact. And, And some cars, though, are becoming very trendy. I think of the Suzuki Jimny. You and I went on the launch of it down in Melbourne at a four-wheel drive training facility. It was a wonderful little boxy car of great character. And I think this is more than just supply in the sense of COVID, but it's the fact that it's now become such a trendy little car. Yeah, it's, it's always been the way. You know, if a car suddenly captures the public imagination, which the Jimny has certainly done, then it will catch the manufacturer out. And they're limited anyway. They, the problem with the motor industry, as you would so well understand, is that they have to plan so far in advance. I remember Holden, uh, Mike Devereaux at Holden's, complaining that trying to explain to politicians how the motor industry worked was an incredibly difficult thing because politicians think in three-year terms, <laughs> as in from election to election. And he said, you know, car companies have to think in five to ten-year cycles because it takes that long from we're going to have a new model to here's one in the showroom. And he said the manufacturers, sorry, the politicians just weren't able to comprehend that it was long lead times and these things had to be worked out. You had to anticipate exchange rate changes and you had to anticipate what people wanted in five years' time, not next week. I remember Holden brought out some time ago, not the latest Commodore, but it was a pretty new Commodore, and there was a screaming abuse that it didn't have a diesel engine because of fuel economy. Mm. And I remember saying, well, you know, you've really got to start thinking about this 10 years before. And now, of course, less than 10 years later, diesel would be the last thing they want to have in European or other areas. I know the Commodore was mainly for us, but the point being is that that, move against diesel was one that made that outrageous self-ranting that happened back then irrelevant. Yes, totally. And misleading in many ways, if you could predict the future. Yeah, I mean, we'd all like to have a crystal ball, but in the car industry, the the costs involved are so enormous, and the the potential damage of getting something wrong or predicting something incorrectly is just frightening. I mean, we've seen poor old Holden. I mean, look at the look at the models they thought were going to sell here and never really got got off. I mean, the the Epica and the uh, the um, the Ma, whatever it was called. <laughs> See, I've even forgotten the name of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Memorable, 
Well, look look what they did. After the fuel crisis in 1973, they quickly went through and brought out a smaller Commodore. It, it was the biggest mistake of their lives. I mean, going all the way back to the the, the VB Commodore, the, the first of the downsized Commodores, that, that yeah. people were very slow to accept that. Eventually, they all decided this made very good sense. But in the initial stages, Holden must have been, or General Motors as Holden as they were then, must have been terrified that they'd misread the market and people were going to buy big Falcons and not buy smaller smaller Commodores. Well, the Commodore got big again. Well, of course it did. (laughs) Probably probably just in time for everyone to start buying smaller cars. Smaller cars and SUVs, that's something we'll talk about uh, uh, coming up as well. Thanks, Paul. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brendan Mock, Roland Rivero, Paul Morell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.